Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is one of my more exciting conversations of the year thus far. Joining us right now, Maya Moore Irons, who was a UConn Husky star, a WNBA star, but really a star off the court as much as on, and her husband, Jonathan Irons, who is a survivor of a terrible injustice inflicted upon him by our criminal justice system. The book is called Love and Justice, A Story of Triumph on Two Different Courts, and I'm so delighted to be able to introduce you to Maya Moore Irons and Jonathan Irons on the Lisa Wexler Show today. Maya and Jonathan, hello, hello. Hello. Hi. I'm so happy that you are on the show with us. First of all, let me just tell you that I love the book, and I love the way in which it goes from Maya's voice to Jonathan's voice to Maya's voice to Jonathan's voice, and it interweaves so the reader really gets to know both of you as individuals and then together. It's a really beautifully written book. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I actually want to begin, Jonathan, if I may, with you, because you start to tell the story of growing up poorer than poor. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit, because none of us really can know, uh, the extent of the kind of poverty that you found yourself in at your earliest ages in Missouri. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, uh, One of the images... uh, kind of even kind of joke about uh, we used to have to climb up the ladder just to say that we were poor. Uh, I remember one time growing up, uh, uh, I went to a friend's house and I needed to use the bathroom and they showed me where the bathroom was, but I didn't know how to use them. I'm like, what is this? He said, that's a toilet. And the reason why I didn't know what was going on is because we used, we grew up using a five gallon bucket that we would use and cover with the newspaper when it was too cold to take it outside and then walk back out in the woods and, and dump it. We used to have to bathe in a, in a tin tub, uh, the type that you see people bathing their dogs in. We, uh, we lived in an old A-frame house that wasn't fully finished that my, you know, my grandmother had paid to take care of it. And there were multiple people living there. It's unbelievable. Jonathan, how old are you now? I am 42, about to be 43 as of January 29th. Sunday, Sunday. Oh, nice. That's so nice. Because we're talking about something that happened, what, about 35 years ago? You were still in this kind of poverty. So we're talking about the 1990s. We're not talking about the 1870s. To think that people still lived and maybe still do live in that kind of abject poverty in this country is, is just a shocking way to begin the story. It's shocking. And uh, your granny loved you very much. So tell us, Jonathan, you were raised by your granny. 
And I want you to talk a little bit about her because she seemed to me to be a woman of extraordinary values. Extraordinary. Oh, man. My, my grandmother used to, uh, every night, she used to re- uh, read the Bible. She had me read the Bible with her. Uh, she, she used to make miracles every day off of, off of, off of pennies on the dollar. She could, she could go in the newspaper and find all the coupons and then when you ate it, you felt like you was eating at a five-star restaurant. Um, she loved people. She loved her community. Everybody called her granny, no matter what color you were. Um, she was just she was just an amazing person. And even though she was in pain and her knees were, were basically crippled, she made, a, she made her way around to, to be a part of everybody's lives that she could, and she took care of everybody. She did, and yet she threw you out on your tuchus into the cold, dark world because she didn't want you dealing pot, right? Yes, that's, that's, that is, when she did that, I knew I was, I knew I was tripping. I, I knew it because Granny didn't do that to nobody. She took everybody in. Mm-hmm. But she didn't, she had her standards. She's like, no, you're not going to do this. I don't know you. I didn't raise you to do that. I thought that was really remarkable because she knew in doing that, that had to have been one of the hardest things she ever did in her whole life. Yeah, she told me later on that like she really regretted it. She uh, she blamed herself. You know, like I, if I if I if I hadn't have did that, you, you wouldn't be in prison. I was like, no, you don't know that, grandma. Yeah. Yeah, but you try and make decisions now that your parents. You see that you try and make decisions. You know, with the information you have, the best that you can. Because you know you're hoping in the long run that you're teaching a lesson, and it's sometimes a really hard. It's sometimes really hard to be a parent. And I, I was really struck by that. So, Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit? And you do say this beautifully in your book. We're chatting with Jonathan Irons and Maya Moore Irons about the forces that led you to be involved with people that you knew you shouldn't be involved with even at the time. What are the forces that led you there? Well, growing up without a father uh, had a lot to do with it. And just living in poverty and, you know, the, the, the uh, the people that I, I looked up to, like they were in my life, and they were family members, and they was they were male figures, and I just wanted to be a part of something. I wanted I wanted to to develop an identity off of off, off of someone, and that's kind of like what, what young boys do. They they, they want to find someone to identify with, to connect with, to, to mimic, to learn from, because we're trying to figure it out. And like I I started to hang out with people that were doing wrong things, but I didn't I didn't really make the connection then. Uh, there's science behind our, our, our brains being developed uh, and not fully developing until we're like 25. And so at, at, at 15, 14, 15, 16, at that age, I was, I was very vulnerable. Yeah, you really were. And so you had a cousin who you were infatuated with for a while, and then you were less infatuated with him. He was a drug dealer, but then you could see he was starting to get addicted to his own stuff. And you try and you leave this world that you're tiptoeing into to work at a McDonald's, and then what happens? Well, I was still on probation, and I was coming home from work one day. My feet was tired. I was I smelled like fries and, and McDonald's chicken nuggets and burgers and all that. And I was walking down the street, and this police officer uh, saw me and did a did a fishtail burnout behind me and pulled his gun out on me, had me get out on the ground, locked me up, took me to the jail, and didn't tell me why. 
And then somebody came to the window, another officer asked me what my name was. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing here? Like, man, I don't know. Somebody locked me up. And two hours later, they let me out. When I tried to go back and get my job, I was fired. I didn't, I, I didn't have my job anymore. And what lesson at that time, Jonathan Irons, did you take away from that? Man, it, it just basically reinforced that the police did not like me and that, that, that I am a target. No, no matter whether I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Because in that moment, I was doing the right thing. I was just walking home from work. Yeah. And then what happened? So how did you eventually, Jonathan Irons, what is the series of events that led to you being in prison? You were still such a kid. How was it that the police picked you up for that second time? Well, I was in this, uh, I was in this neighborhood that was predominantly white. And someone's house got uh, uh, robbed. A guy named Stanley's father. He's the victim in this case. Somebody broke into his house and shot him. And so I was in I was in the neighborhood, uh, of, of probably blocks away from it. And I had a I, had, I was carrying a, a firearm which I had, uh, I had I had taken from a guy who tried to rob me. And young young stupid kid, I was bragging about you know hey I just I just survived and I and the gun was kind of like a survival trophy for me. Uh, but when the police found out that I was in the neighborhood, they just assumed that I did it, and all the evidence pointing to the contrary, they ignored or it was either buried. And so we found it years later. Years later. What a story that is. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So Maya, more irons, the world was really shocked uh, about a couple of things in your life. But when you read your book and your account of your story, it isn't shocking at all. Tell us a little bit about the foundation of your knowledge and how it is that you came to Missouri to get to know Jonathan. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Missouri until I was 11 years old. My mom raised me as a single parent in the middle of Missouri in Jefferson City around some awesome faith-filled extended family. Um, The extended family that I, I grew up with were just solid people, just people's character, showed up for people, loved people, and most of them were teachers. So just some awesome folks. And so when I would go back to visit my extended family in Missouri after we moved away uh, when I was in high school, um, they invited me to meet this man who was fighting for his freedom. And so I had heard about Jonathan's story through them. They had gotten to know Jonathan through a prison ministry opportunity and were telling me about the facts of his case, telling me about his character. And I was very interested. So I, I met him when I was 18 years old, mm-hmm. had no idea stuff like this happened. I thought if you were in prison, you were supposed to be. I had no really sense of the criminal justice system or prosecutors or um, 
anything like that. And so I just began getting to know Jonathan, learning his life, uh, seeing his perspective. And over the years, we just became amazing friends, just encouraging each other, um, living, living life, like living life with each other from a distance. And eventually, our hearts grew closer together, and we became uh, just more honest about the love, the deep love that we had for each other, and trying to figure out how do we do this under these circumstances. And then I got courage and educated more about how to advocate for Jonathan and using my voice to shine a light on his cause, um, educating myself about the criminal justice system and the reforms that are needed, and learning about conviction integrity units that Jonathan taught me about that are that will help with these checks and balances to make sure something like this doesn't happen again, or even being able to correct ones that have happened of wrongful convictions. And so we advocated, we fought. Jonathan taught himself law while he was inside mm-hmm. and ended up drafting the petition that led to his exoneration in 2020. Yeah. And, you know, you open with something that is very close to my heart, uh, Maya. I'm a lawyer as well. I happen to also be a judge in Connecticut. I'm a probate judge. And I care very deeply about justice. It's what's animated my whole life. And uh, one of the things that you talk about in your prologue is your frustration with prosecutors and specifically with overcharging. Talk to us about that. Yes, so I, again, going into my relationship with Jonathan was very disconnected from my role as a citizen in this country and in our community. And so over the years, I've been learning more about the role uh, that prosecutors serve in our community as far as justice, because they're essentially one of the most powerful actors in our justice system because they bring the charges and they kind of set the rules of the game. Uh, And so... Um, if you have a prosecutor's office that has a high culture of winning and of just kind of trying to get to conviction, sometimes that spirit of win at all costs ends up mis, uh, misusing justice. And so you, instead of having more of a restorative justice lens and really looking deeply at how are both sides going to be impacted by these decisions, what sentences are actually going to bring restoration? What type of, what what does justice look like? If we don't really change some of that culture, kids like Jonathan get thrown away um, in the the name of trying to make a, you know, prove a point or or make a statement or whatever the unjust reasons are. And so I got to witness firsthand um, through Jonathan's fight to come home also how prosecutors, will try to win at all costs when a false document was presented in Jonathan's fight for freedom um, when we were trying to uh, exonerate him. And I saw it firsthand in the courtroom. And so I was just blown away at the arrogance, at the heartlessness that the win at all costs spirit can have um, when you have the evidence plainly right in front of you of someone's innocence. Um, it's, It's just appalling. And so we had to talk about it. We had to say, this is enough, and this doesn't have to happen again. And so that was a big motivation and why we shared our story. So you guys have shared your story. The book is called Love and Justice, A Story of Triumph on Two Different Courts. What do you want to do, Maya, now with this story and with this book? What is your, what, how is your passion translating into more activism? Thankfully, you've got your husband by your side. Congratulations on being a mommy and you're together, and Jonathan is free. But 
What responsibilities, if any, do the two of you feel towards all the other people that are left in jails that maybe shouldn't be there? That's a great question. Um, I think first, we it's very important to remember we all are on this team together, and we all play a role. Jonathan and I can't save everyone, but each person in their community can start to shift their mindset to a more communal, team-like mindset of saying, I do have a responsibility to my neighbor. We're not, we can't be everyone's neighbor, but everyone can be each other's neighbor. And Mm -hmm. so one of the spirits behind what we're trying to do is to help encourage people to become a better neighbor. And so sharing our story, casting a vision of when, when we see each other. You know, I had no idea who Jonathan was. I didn't grow up just like him. And so I had to step outside of my comfort zone to see him and to learn from him and to be inspired by him and to see the value in his life. And then we became family. And so hopefully that spirit can spread because when, when our communities are connected and we see each other, it's really hard to throw people away. So that is the heartbeat of what we want to do as far as uh, um, giving people information of how they can become a better neighbor, how they can become a more informed voter for prosecutors, and just trying to continue to share stories of hope because stories of hope is what really uh, we need. we, We talk about the bad, we shine a light on the bad so that it goes away, so that we do something about it, and then we share those good stories when people are actually doing something about the injustice. Maya Moore Irons, Jonathan Irons, the book Love and Justice is a real story of triumph. I I loved it. I'm so happy that the two of you chose to come back on here in Connecticut where you're so beloved, Maya, and it's wonderful to get to know you too, Jonathan. Thank you for for sharing your story and thank you for inspiring the rest of us to do something good. Thank you. And God bless you both. God bless you both and your beautiful child. Thank you very much. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com.